Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. This morning, our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 57, verses 14 through 21. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Our second reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you were once, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing, abolishing, excuse me, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you yet. Yes, thank you. Did you hear the yay? I heard some yaying during praise also. Hey, out of the mouth of babes, right? 
We love having our children in the service, even when it's hard <laughs> and difficult. We are a community defined by God, not by, you know, well-behaved adults. We are, it's become a trope to say now in our society that we are a society divided. It seems like the one thing we can agree on is that we can agree that no one agrees that we are uh, very divided, full of hostility, literal hostility, whether it's wars in Ukraine, wars in Israel, metaphorical hostility, political hostility. It's all, all over the place. The election cycle never ends, it seems like. And then we read a passage like this that says the hostility has been killed and peace has been brought near and that should seem awfully foolish. That, I, I want us to, I mean, it should seem ridiculous in a world like this to say that hostility has been killed. What, what should we do? Does this just mean that we should put our heads in the sand and pretend that the world around us doesn't exist and that's how we're going to act? Like there is no real strife and conflict and wars and rumors of wars. Is it foolish to be a Christian? To say that peace has really come? Even as we look to Christmas and they'll be singing, even in the malls, they'll be singing peace and good news to the world. And does it make any sense to say things like that in this sort of world? I do think it's, it's foolish if verses 1 through 10 are not true. We have, last week we looked at these ridiculously good verses of the riches of his grace. That while we were dead in our sin, Christ raised us with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. By grace you have been saved, not by your own doing, that no one may boast. He has just come off the unbelievable grace of the gospel. Therefore, go, created in Christ Jesus, do the good works that he has prepared beforehand for you. In, con in that context, with that reality, then he can actually say, maybe the hostility has been killed. And maybe the church has the beautiful calling to show that. To make it known in the world, to be a reflection of that. We look in this passage to the horizontal, as it were, the horizontal uh, truths of the gospel. As last week we saw the vertical. Let's pray and we will try to get a sense of what that could mean. Lord, we do pray for your peace. Peace that is not fake, not just washing over uh, real differences and real sin, but we pray for the presence of Christ in our midst, that you would speak to us, that you would comfort those who are 
brokenhearted, that you would challenge those who are stubborn and hard-hearted, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak, that we would hear from you alone, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in this second half of Ephesians 2, this letter of Paul's to a church in Ephesus. He is writing to a group of Christians, predominantly, we see clearly in this passage, predominantly Gentile Christians. And first, he wants us to just remember, he wants them to remember simply the hostility that they have come from. Remember the hostility is the first point. Remember just how bad you had it. Now he's writing to Gentiles in the flesh, as he calls them, and they would not have ever considered themselves in this way. So this isn't, this is a, a sort of odd thing to say, remember, you never really thought yourself this way. But now that you have been raised in Christ, you can look back and see how far you have come. So he's writing to a people who were hopeless. Tells us that they were hopeless, they were separated from Christ, meaning separated from the Messiah, separated from the promises of the Messiah, separated from the covenants of promise, he tells us. They were without hope. They were alienated from Israel, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is, this is biblical Israel. This is not the, the political nation today. They were apart from the biblical Israel. Israel had this purpose to show forth the glory and the grace of God to the world. And if you are outside of Israel, yes, they would bring in converts, but otherwise you had no access. You had no hope if you were outside of this commonwealth. You see this throughout the Old Testament where God is trying to show forth to the world who he is through this specific nation. They were apart from that. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't say that they knew the real God. And so he says, you were not only without hope, without promise, you were without God himself. Literal atheists in this passage. Now, of course, they weren't atheists. They believed in a lot of gods. The Roman pantheon was numerous. But they were without the real God. Notice that he's talking to them as a community. And this may be hard for us to appreciate. He's not talking to them as individuals. He's talking to them as a group. You Gentiles in the flesh, he says. You were all far off from God. This is a hard thing for us in the West to appreciate being addressed as a community. But surely it is true. There are all sorts of ways in which this is true. You can say this in all sorts of ways. You Americans, X, Y, and Z. It may be strange, especially if we are a part of the majority culture, then it doesn't seem like 
we have any kind of identity that we've been given in the, as a community, but we all have. We all are something because of the community we're born into. Certain things are given to us, certain things are not. But in this case, talking to the Gentiles in the flesh, he's trying to make a redemptive historical argument. He's saying that something was simply true in the history of redemption. And now that's no longer true. Something was true before Christ. And now that is no longer true. So I think we can actually say verses 11 and 12 are no longer true of anyone. There is no community, no people group, no tribe or language that we can say, you are cut off simply because of who you are. It was true, you were cut off from Israel. You should remember that because it shows you a picture of your sin. But now, now everything has changed. There was great hostility between you and God, between you and the people of God, but now there is no longer. There is now no chosen people group, no chosen culture, language. English is not the language of God. America is not the chosen nation. Because the hostility has died. So we remember the hostility, yes, but we remember the hostility has died. And so we have this great transition that parallels perfectly the first half of the chapter. You are, you are like the walking dead. You were dead in your sin and the trespasses. But God? And then again in our passage, verse 13, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one, has broken down his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is a declaration of what has happened in the past. It's a declaration of something that is true. That there now is no hostility. And so we learn that the cross goes vertical and horizontal at the same time. Meaning the hostility in the first part of the chapter was the hostility that we had with God. That's what had died. And also at the cross by the blood of Jesus, the hostility that we have had with one another, that too has died. The horizontal hostility also has died. So this is not like you get yourself right with God on your own, you figure it out, you and Jesus in the privacy of your own home, and then you can go out and maybe find a church. No, it happens 
all at once. It happens all at once. You cannot experience the vertical grace of God apart from the horizontal grace of the community. It's all one the same. It's all happening in the cross. We, the, the, the problem with not being right with God, you could say, is that it's a lot more than just having a problem with God, which is already a lot. But because of who God is, it puts us, we are then cut off. The fall is cosmic. What you see in Genesis 3 is not that they are just cast out of Eden. They are cut off from each other, from the ground itself, how things will work. He will now sweat. Everything is cut off. Everything is broken. Which then gets reversed. But now, in Christ Jesus, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, some people think, actually, Paul was referring to the literal wall. There was a literal wall in the temple. The temple was this huge structure. You had the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles could go to, like, the outside porch area, if you will. And then there was a literal wall, about four feet high, apparently. Archaeologists have discovered it. And it read this. This is amazing. No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. That was written on the wall. The dividing wall of hostility. It is hard to imagine the hostility. Now we do need to separate it. God called Israel for a specific purpose, right? And, and much of the hostility was that calling was corrupted, the chosenness was corrupted, but it is hard to imagine the hostility between Jew and Gentile in the first century. It goes far beyond the hostility we may have between, I don't know, Republican and Democrat, the U.S. and Russia, I don't know, Yale versus Harvard, serious hostilities. the dividing wall of hostility. If you were a Jew, you knew, you knew two things. You knew that God is one, and you knew that you were not Gentile. There was a major separation between that cut through the whole universe. You're either Jew or Gentile. That is it. And that hostility has died. Now, he can't mean, when Paul says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he can't mean the entire law. He's actually going to go on and quote the moral law and say all, describe all these ways that he calls us to obey it. So it's not that you know, things like the Ten Commandments now are abolished. It's that all the ways that those laws were used to separate out the people, the laws around the temple, the laws around keeping kosher, circumcision, the laws that would say there is this outward dividing line between a people that look 
or act a certain way and everyone else. What sometimes is called the ceremonial law, the civic law, there is now no dividing wall. You can't now go around and say, because you look this way or speak this language, you are not a part of the people of God. That's why he can say, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. Access. Like a, it's like introduction to a king or queen. If you watch The Crown, you know everyone has to be introduced to the queen. You can't just, even your own, her own son can't just walk into the room where the queen is. You have to be said, okay, the queen will see you now. That's like a royal access. We now all have access to the one God. And Paul is adamant about this over and over throughout the letters in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, this is the major debate. If you have come to believe in Jesus, do you have to become Jewish? It sounds kind of weird to us. How could that be the debate? It's because of Israel. Because of the whole Old Testament, right? This is the major debate. And what is at stake is the very gospel itself that says, no, you do not have to become Jewish. Because now we both have access to the one Father through the one Spirit. And this becomes paradigmatic for all relationships. It's almost like if he can cross the Jew-Gentile divide, he can cross anything else. So Paul says in Colossians 3, which mirrors Ephesians in a lot of ways, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Notice how big his view of Christ has to be. All of this is true because we are in Christ. That's the identity that takes precedence over all others. Being in Christ. I said it's hard to imagine the, the dividing wall that existed between the Jew-Gentile. It's also hard to imagine how hierarchical of a society the Roman society was. That everyone had their place and their station and it all you could, you could walk your way all the way up to the emperor. Well, we like to think we don't have hierarchies anymore. Of course, we still do. We just don't like to admit it. But he is saying, in the church, they no longer hold. They no longer hold. That every way that we try to outdo and perform and impress and, and elevate ourselves, 
no longer hold. And so he calls us to see those who are in Christ in a whole different way. And I want to look at those two main ways. The first is that we have gone from war to peace. We have gone from hostility to peace. What would it mean for us to see our relationships in the church as foundational, as as being at their foundation peaceful? Notice that he has already broken down the dividing wall. He already is himself our peace. This is a God-given reality. And so everything that we do in the church is something that we do out of our being in Christ. The being comes before the doing. That's really significant. Because if we are to act with any sort of hostility, any sort of boastful pride amongst each other, we are contradicting who we are in Christ. So to see another person in Christ and not have this sort of radical compassion and peace at its foundation is to act against who Christ already is. What He has already done. It's to act in a B.C. mindset, you could say, as if Christ hasn't come. You're trying to go back. Or as Paul will say elsewhere, as if Christ died for nothing. That's what's at stake. You're acting as if Christ died for nothing. So, how do we do that? How do we act that way? Do we act with each other in a way that we just keep trying to change each other? Keep trying to get things out of each other? Keep trying to show off how much we know? Like, think even about the, the, the motivation, the inner thought life that you have when you're interacting with others. And how beautiful it would be if it started from peace. Peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is the presence of Christ himself. That he has brought us together, reconciled us both to God. Also notice... This does not mean that it is easy, and it certainly doesn't mean that we just brush over our differences or ignore them as if they're not there. When he says there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female, he doesn't mean that you're no longer a man or a woman, right? That would be foolish. If we have to, if we want to have actual unity, the differences have to remain.
Because if the differences don't remain, then our unity starts to be in something else. So if we are united by political persuasion or culture or whatever it may be, that becomes the basis of our unity. But if we are united in Christ, then there should be actual differences that have to stay. I cannot stop being who I have been born to be in all those ways that are not sinful. And it's that unity in Christ that he is calling us to. So we have gone from war to peace, and we have also gone from two to one. But let's be honest. The church is often the least peaceful place. Right? Thank you, somebody left. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's what, when someone meets, hears that I'm a pastor, you know, that's, there's usually some joke about, you know, how political it must be or how terrible it must be dealing with people in the church or something like that. Sorry, I don't affirm them in that. But we do need to realize that in the name of Jesus Christ, there has been real, awful hurt. Real pain. Either you, yourself, people you know, or just look at history and you can see it everywhere. How can we read this passage knowing that? Well, I don't have a very good answer other than simply facing it. We have to name it. We have to recognize it, recognize the horrors that have been committed, and repent. Repent. If we are one, then we, we, we bear each other's sins. Not just the easy, good stuff, right? Repent. Recognize it. Name it. Mourn and grieve over it. Realizing that sometimes love your enemy means love the person in the church. And somehow keep trying to pursue the peace that Christ died for. There is no other way. I don't see any other way to answer that. But we see at least how much we should grieve over it because it is something that Christ has died for. That should give us power to face it and to truly grieve over it. Because we know, we know that nothing will run deeper than the power of Christ. So we don't have to run away from it. We don't have to pretend like it's not there. We don't have to brush over real sin and real hurt. Because this is what he has died for, that we would be a community that is peaceful. 
But if it's going to be real peace, it has to overcome real hostility. Real hostility. So we have gone from war to peace and from two to one. Let me end, let me end with the two to one. We need to really, really remember why is the church one? The ancient creed says we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Why is the church one? Because there's only one Jesus. Verse 14 says, He himself is our peace, who has made us, meaning Jew and Gentile, both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In that case, the gendered words are helpful. Make in, create in himself the one new man. Why? Because he is making us new into Christ. There is one church because we are built up into Christ. Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord. The hostility has died in him and I wonder if we just need to take death, the death, more seriously. There's a sense in which, you know, when you're, you're, you're at a funeral or, or someone has recently died and you have just greater perspective on reality, you have the courage to sort of say something to your loved one that you've been wanting to say all, the, all your life because this has just happened. We live in the shadow of Jesus' death. That is the shadow that defines our entire lives. And what he is saying is if we live in that shadow, we are one. We are one. There is now no longer Jew or Gentile. There is now a third category. Christian. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, you're a Christian. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we, that unity, being one, doesn't mean we just pretend like we're all the same, right? Because there is no real unity without diversity. As I would say sometimes in our athletes' ministry, be careful lest you don't need Jesus to hang out with each other. So the church, we should be hanging out with people that we wouldn't otherwise hang out with, because of Jesus. Or else we're just hanging out with them because we're friends and we like to watch football together. Now, Revelation shows us that vision where all the nations and languages and tribes are worshiping the Lord. So don't confuse unity with, with sameness. But unity gives an incredibly powerful, powerful dignity and equality in love in worth again remembering Paul is writing this in prison in an incredibly hierarchical society and he can say we are all made 
one. How radical is that? What is it that tears that apart for us, for you? What is it that you let come between your brother and sister in Christ? I just happened to read this quote. I think a lot of it is, a lot of times it's, for me, it's cynicism or just straight up malice. And I just happened to read this last night from an old Russian spiritual writer. Fear malice as you fear the fire. (laughs) Do not admit it into your heart, no matter how plausible the pretense. Malice is always an evil, a child of hell. Nothing is as infectious as malice. Is Is malice for you? Is it something else? That you need to chase out of your heart. Pursue it out of your heart because it is a contradiction of who you are in Jesus. This reality that is given simply by grace. And so this this passage gives horizontal flesh to the beauty of the grace that we read about last week. The incredible riches of God's grace. We get to see now, experience now, in the church. Because the church's one foundation, as that great hymn says, the church's one foundation is Christ Jesus, her Lord. Let that be the calling that we have. Let that be what we can dream for, pursue after the purity and peace, not as an absence of conflict, but as the presence of Christ where nothing, nothing comes between us and Jesus and nothing comes between us, brothers and sisters. Amen. Father, we do pray for this sort of community. We know it is not a community we have created nor can create, and so we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, continue to create in Jesus Christ, create us as one. Lord, give us wisdom and grace to see what it would mean to receive your peace to the praise of your glory. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.